Now, let's see, we're picking up today with lesson in our study, lesson number 117. And that lesson was entitled, Crosses and Cups Before Crowns, found in Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. And in that particular lesson, we found that a sense of foreboding tenseness had come upon the Lord's disciples. He had begun at this point his final walk to Jerusalem. And Mark 10, verse 32 tells us that his disciples were afraid. The men were apprehensive at this time because the shadow of the cross was beginning to fall upon them and a nameless dread, which they didn't fully understand, was beginning to take hold of their hearts. And this apprehension was soon verified for them when Jesus once again announced in very specific detail his soon approaching time of suffering and shame and crucifixion and then his resurrection to follow. Well, their nerves already frayed. It didn't take much, therefore, for them to give in to their carnal natures. And we found that John and James referred to by the Lord himself as the sons of thunder at another time in their lives, John and James revealed their selfish ambitions by sending their mother to request for them the seats of honor at the right and the left hand of the Lord Jesus when he would rule in his kingdom, when he would rule in glory. And this request, of course, caused the other disciples to turn upon these two men in indignation and this whole scene resulted in another teaching session from the lord jesus on what do you think humility exactly and being a servant and that we saw in mark 11. he again reminded his disciples that the greatest in god's sight from god's perspective is the one who is a servant and it was in this particular passage that he told them that even the son came not to be ministered unto, but to, what? To minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, as the Lord then continued on his way with not only his disciples, but with a large group of other Passover pilgrims, primarily from the area of Galilee, who were, as with the Lord, on their way to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover, he came to the warm and the very pleasant city of Jericho called also the city of palms and that was significant because it was in that city where many of the passover pilgrims picked up palm leaves which of course they waved on palm sunday and it was right outside of that city that the physic that the lord physically healed a blind man named what bartimaeus uh, who also had saving faith in Jesus. So he was not only healed physically, but he was also healed spiritually. And it was while he was inside of the city that he healed another man. He healed a wee little man, a, a tax collector named, you say it, Zacchaeus, exactly. He was healed spiritually. Bartimaeus was healed both physically and spiritually. Zacchaeus did not grow tall, so he was not healed physically, but he was healed spiritually because he came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the story of these two men, which we've entitled Bart and Zach, in a little mini-album if you're interested. 
um, just the two tapes, one on Bartimaeus and one on Zacchaeus, and there's a lot of great spiritual teaching and significance in the story of these two men. So if you're interested in that and you weren't here, you can get that little mini album. Now, since it was the time of the Passover, when people were thinking about Jewish deliverance from Egyptian oppression, of course, now they're under Roman oppression, and since Jesus, the great miracle worker, was um, now on his way to the holy city, you can imagine messianic expectations were at an all-time high. The Lord knew this, and he knew that the people traveling with him were expecting him really to march right into Jerusalem and use his great miraculous powers to do what? To overthrow the Romans and to take over the city. So he knew at this time that he needed to teach his disciples and the Galilean Passover pilgrims with him the true nature of the position that he was about to take up and the position which they as his servants would soon have to take up when he departed from them. So through the parable of the pounds, which is found in Luke, of course, Luke is the one who emphasizes parables, found in Luke 19, verses 1 to 27, he uh, told his men and these pilgrims that he would soon be departing and that he would not be returning for a long time. They would be left behind and consequently put in charge of carrying on his business in his absence. He did say in this parable that he would return one day and he would set up the promised messianic kingdom here on earth. But until that time, there was much to be done through his people. So with the Lord's presentation of the parable of the pounds, we ended our long, long look at everything which the Lord had done on earth in his public earthly ministry prior to his final week. And that final week is known as the Passion Week because it was the week of his passion on the cross. And that took us 120 lessons to do to cover everything he had done up until the Passion Week. And as I hope you've seen just from this re review, I think today's lesson five, five weeks of review, it was a lot of territory to cover because his time was action-packed and full of all sorts of teaching. And we have just raced through it very quickly, but when we were doing it verse by verse and taking our time, it took us about five and a half years to do that. So with lesson 121, we began our look at the Lord's last eight days of his life. And we began this during the middle of our fifth year. Now, you may wonder why, since we are beginning our eighth year, why it has taken us so long um, to cover just eight days. Well, we haven't even finished covering eight days. But why has it taken us so long? Well, there's a reason for that. Number one, I'm very slow. <laughs> right. Secondly, there is a total of 89 chapters, if you wanted to count through, which I did here, 28 in Matthew, 16 in Mark, and so on. There are a total of 89 chapters found in the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, four of those chapters, and I don't have that up there, but four of those chapters record the first 30 years of our Lord's life. Not very many out of the 89. But of the remaining 85 chapters, 
23 of them described the Lord's final week of his life. In other words, as measured by the scriptural space which is given to it, the last week of the Lord's earthly ministry and all, of course, what follows, his post-resurrection appearances, is actually eight times more important, you know, according to God, the Holy Spirit who wrote the scripture, is eight times more important than the first 30 years. That last week is eight times more important than the first 30. Of the 21 chapters just in John's gospel, ten and a half of them are dedicated to his last week and following his post-resurrection appearances. And that's 50% of John's gospel. So in case you're wondering why it's taken us, what, two and a half years just to be on this last week, that's the reason. Because we're covering about one-fourth of the total gospel contents just in these last eight days. Now, before we take a look at each day of that final week up to Friday, which was the day we left off, we... we Friday, the day of crucifixion, I want to just give you a quick little review here of each of the last days of his life and uh, give you one word to um, kind of maybe stick in your mind, one word assigned to each day, which tells you briefly what that day was all about. Sunday, of course, was the day of presentation. We'll talk about that this morning. That was the day that he officially rode into Jerusalem and declared himself to be the Messiah. So he was presenting himself officially to the nation as their Messiah. Then we had Monday, which we'll also talk about this morning. Monday was the day of demonstration. He performed two acts of judgment on that day. One was cursing a fruitless fig tree and the other was the cleansing of a filthy temple. Tuesday was the day of confrontation. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing. If I get to it this morning, we're going to talk about the various... Um, Issues which the Jews presented to him in order to ensnare him with his own answer. But in each case, of course, he totally turned the tables on them and embarrassed them. It was also the day of his denunciation discourse, his woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, found in Matthew 23. And it was also the day, Tuesday was, we have more details on Tuesday than any other day of the Lord's whole life, this Tuesday of the Passion Week. Um, it was also the day when he spoke the Olivet Discourse. Very, very important discourse. Then Wednesday, really we have nothing recorded in the Gospels on Wednesday. It was the day of relaxation for the Lord, which he desperately would need for all that was ahead of him. So we call it a day of relaxation or a day of supplication because knowing the Lord Jesus, we know he was probably in prayer all day. And then Thursday is the day of preparation. That was the day that the Lord sent Peter and John to prepare the Passover supper. And that night he met with his men in the upper room. They celebrated the last Passover supper together. And then after the dismissal of Judas Iscariot, he initiated the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And he um, then prepared his men again for his very soon departure with his farewell discourse, which we discussed in detail, a very, very comforting, wonderful discourse that is found in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Then on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, he stopped and prayed, probably right outside the garden, the Lord's high priestly prayer, found in John chapter 17. And then, of course, late Thursday night or early Friday morning, we discussed his agony, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. Saturday then, of course, the Lord is, or excuse me, Friday, I forgot Friday. Friday, the most important, was the day of crucifixion. After the Lord's six illegal and totally unfair trials, which we looked at at the end of last year in great detail, he was taken to Calvary, which was where we left off, his walk to Calvary. And, of course, we know there on an old rugged cross, he willingly gave his life for the sins of the world. Then Saturday, the Lord is dead, and he's buried in the tomb, a borrowed tomb, rich man's tomb. Saturday, nobody knows really what's going to happen, and so we call that the day of anticipation. And Sunday, of course, is the marvelous day of what? Of resurrection. So, beginning with the first day of this very eventful and most significant week in all of human history we considered the king's prophetic entry into Jerusalem, which is the day that we very commonly call Palm Sunday. After his encounters with Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, the Lord made that six-hour walk from Jericho, Jericho over to Jerusalem, accompanied, as I said, by a large crowd of Galilean Passover pilgrims who were also entering the city in order to celebrate the Passover feast. And, of course, we talked about the Passover feast, which was a time when the Jews commemorated their ancestors' deliverance from both the angel of death, when they put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes, and it was also, of course, commemorating their deliverance from bondage to the Egyptians. Now, there were several Old Testament prophecies which were fulfilled on that Sunday of the Passover week, which we call Palm Sunday, when the Lord Jesus entered into Jerusalem and allowed the people to hail him as the Messiah as they were waving their palm branches, which they probably picked up over in Jericho. One prophecy was given by Zechariah. It's found in Zechariah 9.9. It was a messianic prophecy which predicted that Jerusalem's just king the one who would have the ability to provide salvation for the people, would come unto her humbly, lowly, and meek, riding on the foal of a donkey. And this, of course, we know is exactly how the Lord entered into the holy city. It was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, right to the letter. Then another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy was that the multitude of people cried out, Hosanna, which means save us or save now. Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom that cometh, the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people in the crowd realized that the Lord's action of riding into Jerusalem, mounted on the colt of a donkey, was a fulfillment of messianic prophecy and therefore they shouted accordingly they knew what he was officially doing that he was officially presenting himself to the people as their messiah and their shouts of praise were actually also a fulfillment of of prophecy it was a fulfillment of psalm 118 verses 24 and 26 which predicted this very momentous day and a lot of times we wake up in the morning and we say, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made. But actually that prophecy was speaking about this particular day, Palm Sunday. 
this Palm Sunday is the day that the Lord hath made we will rejoice and be glad in it and then it goes on to say save now which I told you in Hebrew is Hosanna I beseech thee O Lord O Lord I beseech thee send now prosperity or salvation blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord that's what the people were saying and shouting on Palm Sunday because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah but the, the sad truth about the fact that they believed he was the Messiah was that they were wrong in their belief about what kind of a Messiah they thought he was they wanted him to be a deliverer from who from Rome they weren't even thinking really about being saved from their bondage to sin and death they were just thinking about a Messiah who would free them from Roman oppression they knew that he was a king but they failed to understand the nature of his kingship and they failed to understand the nature of his kingdom that it was a spiritual kingdom they were only thinking physically and literally but the most significant prophecy that was fulfilled on that significant Sunday was the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 which in my estimation contains the greatest prophecy in all the Word of God it's a prophecy known as the 70 weeks prophecy and I can't explain all the details of it now but again we have a mini album two cassettes for 350 that is on this great fantastic prophecy if you have never studied it you really need to study it for more reasons than just Palm Sunday it's a very very important prophecy concerning all the end time um, events to come too according to the information which the Jews themselves had available to them from both this prophecy and from actual past history uh, in other words they had Daniel 9 and they had the fact in history past that King Artaxerxes had signed a decree to rebuild Jerusalem on March 14 445 BC according to this information which they had available they could have calculated that the Messiah would arrive officially from that 445 BC date he would arrive in 173,880 days and there is a calculation and you don't have to jot all this down but it's really very easy to figure that out they wouldn't the, the Jewish people are very smart mathematically anyway and it really wouldn't take a lot for them to figure it out but if they had bothered to make those calculations they would have discovered that the very day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem seated upon that young donkey was in fact that 173rd 880th day to the day and this was one of the reasons why Jesus wept later on that day when he said to Jerusalem if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace but you knew not the time of your visitation Luke 19 44 
they had it at their fingertips. They could have calculated and they could have known without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, as had been predicted by Daniel the prophet. Well, that's all I'm going to say about Sunday. We're going to move right on now to Monday. Monday, we uh, said earlier, was the day of demonstration. On Monday, the Lord, on his two-mile return trip to Jerusalem from Bethany, where he would spend most nights during the Passion Week, he would leave Jerusalem late at night, cross down the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives, and then he would walk the two miles over to Bethany, where he would spend the night in the home of his friends, Martha, Mary, and who else? Who had he raised from the dead? Right, their brother Lazarus. Well, on his two-mile walk back to, the, to Jerusalem early in the morning, he um, cursed a barren fig tree, which we said he saw probably in the area of Bethpage. And the disciples noticed on the following day, Tuesday morning, that this fig tree had instantly withered up and died, and that was a miracle that it should do it that that it should wither up that quickly, and they commented on that. Now that was the last miracle of any type, other than the resurrection. That was the last miracle of any type found in the book of Mark. There are other miracles, but not in Mark. And this miracle, which we discussed at that time, and we discussed I think a couple weeks ago, didn't we, or maybe even last week. This was performed by Jesus as a prediction of things to come for spiritually barren Israel. Her lack of good fruit, her lack of spiritual fruit, proved that she, Israel, was a corrupt tree worthy of only being hewn down. Remember, as Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, he had said, every good tree bringeth forth what? Good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And then he went on and he said, Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit, like this barren fig tree which symbolized Israel, is hewn down. And then the Lord, after cursing that tree, went on to the city of Jerusalem and he entered, as he always did, straight into the temple, which he had scrutinized with a very special look on Monday before he had departed from it. And apparently what he had seen there with his scrutinizing look on Monday, I mean on Sunday, excuse me, when he left on Palm Sunday, had not pleased him because now on Monday morning, before literally thousands of people who were thronging the court of the Gentiles, Jesus in righteous indignation began once again, as he had done early in his public ministry, to cast out both the merchants and their customers. And he did this again without any warning. He just entered the temple and immediately began to chase everyone out. Apparently, just the look in his eyes and the authority of his person caused everyone to run because we found that he was offered absolutely no resistance at all. No temple police dared to touch him. None of the thousands of people there tried to grab his arms and stop him. Single-handedly, the Lord Jesus made a shambles of Annas's bazaar. Tables were overturned. You know, money must have been clinking and rolling on the floors. Animals were, would be running around loose and birds would be flying everywhere. But not one person dared to raise even a finger against the one who was causing all of this disturbance just by himself. <laughs> 
And I think that fact alone tells us how very different and how very special this person was and is. Jesus had come to this world in great humiliation, great condescension as the incarnate Son of God. Yet on this occasion, as well as on a few other occasions, he did manifest forth his divine hatred for sin, especially against the type of sin which belittled or mocked the holiness of his father. The corrupt, greedy, and wicked booth business, which had been established by the two co-reigning high priests, Caiaphas and Annas, was definitely making a mockery out of the holiness of God himself. And Jesus had every right to do what he did. As a matter of fact, he even supported what he was doing as everyone was scrambling around in great confusion because he said, it is written, and this comes right from uh, the Psalms, or no, excuse me, from Isaiah 56, 7, where it says that my house shall be called of all the nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it, what? Exactly, a den of thieves. The house of God was to be a place of worship. It was to be a place where people could go especially here in the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles would be drawn to the holiness of Jehovah God. It was to be a place of worship where people could go and find God's will and his blessings through their worship and through their sacrifices and through their offerings. But the greedy leaders of the nation had made it into a combination marketplace and stockyard and bank. So you see, they had taken a place of praying for the people and made it actually a place of praying on the people, if you get my pun there. Well, the reaction to this second cleansing of the temple within a three-year period by the same man, Jesus of Nazareth, really did the scribes and the Pharisees in. And now more than ever, it says in Mark 11:18, they sought how they might destroy him. He had become a real source of irritation to them. And they were now totally determined to rid themselves of him once and for all. They had been determined before this, but this just really did it. What the Lord Jesus was demonstrating by way of his two Monday acts of judgment was his divine judgment against both the outward and the inward corruption of Israel. If you can see this, this is very symbolic. Her outward corruption was represented by the fruitless fig tree. We often see Israel in the Old Testament represented as a fig tree. Here she was a fruitless fig tree. And he had to curse her. And she withered up. And we know literally that cursing, even though symbolic, was fulfilled when she was destroyed in 70 A.D. She withered up. But again, as we talked about, her roots were still there, so she's going to come back one day. She is in the process of coming back. And uh, her inward corruption was represented by the filthy temple, which he had to cleanse. Because she was fruitless and filthy, she would have to be cut down to her roots. And in thinking of her temple, she'd have to be cut down to the very stones. Remember how he said that not one stone would be left upon another. Things, these things had to be done in order to purge Israel of her pride and of her rebelliousness. Well, the next event which occurred on Monday, 
of the Passion Week was that Christ was sought out by some Greeks. And I always love these seeking Greeks because I feel like somewhere down the line they were my ancestors. <laughs> and they were seeking the Lord Jesus. And so I love these guys. Or maybe there were some women there too. John 12:20 tells us that these Greeks had come to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. So what does that tell us? They had obviously accepted Judaism um, as their religion. And they had converted to a faith like myself in Jehovah God. They had come out of the Greek Orthodoxy. No, they had come out of, actually, they had come out of the pagan gods of Greek mythology, I'm sure. Well, these men went straight to Philip, and I always think they probably did because Philip is a Greek name. And maybe they thought this guy would have some compassion for Greeks. What did Philip do? He went to Andrew. And Andrew, as we always see every time we see Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Andrew brought these Greeks to the Lord Jesus. Perhaps, like some other Gentile wise men early in the Lord's ministry, perhaps these Greeks were able to discern the scriptures more objectively than the Jews. And perhaps they were more readily able to discern that Jesus had been fulfilling all kinds of messianic prophecies. After all, you know, these Greeks did not have to deal with the uh, stumbling blocks as the Jews' stumbling blocks such as their prejudices against Galileans or Nazarenes. Nor did they concern themselves with the attitudes and the biases of the scribes and the Pharisees because it would not mean for them the end of their social and spiritual lives if they were desynagogued because of their belief in Jesus. So they didn't have that threat hanging over them, being Greeks. It's interesting that unlike the Jews who frequently would say we would see a sign, these Gentiles said to Philip and to Andrew, we would see Jesus. Isn't that neat? We don't want to see a sign. Just take us right to Jesus. We would see him. And this is what the prophet Haggai and Haggai 2.7 had predicted, that the desire of all nations would come. So this, the seeking Greeks were actually fulfilling prophecy here. Now, in response to the request of these Greeks, the Lord predicted for the very first time that his hour had come. Throughout our whole review, we've been seeing that every time the Jews went to take him, he escaped out of their midst because his hour had not yet come, right? For the first time now, and this is uh, Monday of the Passion Week, he announces that his hour had come. That's in John 12:23. He then went on to predict that this hour was to be the hour of his glorification. So you see, he was not looking at the hour of crucifixion. He was seeing beyond that shame to his actual hour of glorification in his resurrection and then his ascension. And then he explained to his listeners that the pathway to glory lay by way of the cross. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if I die, if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He was saying that in like manner as a seed or a corn of wheat, unless he die, he would not reproduce life in others. Right? such as those seeking Greeks. 
But if he were crucified, then a great harvest would result from his death. You know, the Lord's death was actually the life of the world. And to wish for him not to die, as we find the disciples constantly doing, they did not want him to die. They wanted him to be there with him forever, them forever. But to wish for him not to die would be as foolish as it would be to keep seed corn perpetually locked up in a granary and refuse to sow it. Jesus was telling his men, as well as telling the Greeks who were listening, that he was this corn of wheat that he was talking about. He told them that he must die, otherwise his whole purpose in coming to this world would go unaccomplished. Millions and millions of souls would remain unsaved. And you and I would not be here today, would we? And we would not have the hope, the sure hope of eternity with him. But if he did die, then there would be a great harvest. And, of course, we know that there has been. And then in verses 25 and 26 of John chapter 12, he went on to say that death is really the pathway to life. He said, he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. The one who is ready and willing to give up self-will and self-love and even his own physical life, if necessary, for Christ's sake, that one, and who is also willing to give up his love for this present world, you know, material, materialism, he will be the one who will reap a far better harvest in the long run, won't he? Be in eternity. But the one who loves his life will lose it for all of eternity. Well, then, following a brief but very emotional prayer of submission to his Father's will, which we find in John 12, verses 27 and 28, and that prayer was, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So he's asking himself, or he's saying to God, Shall I ask you, Lord, to save me from this hour? And then he says, Of course not. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Well, after he said that, there was a voice from heaven, and the people heard it, and they thought it was thunder. And God spoke from heaven, telling his son that he had glorified his name and that he would glorify it again. And we know the father did glorify his own name through the death of his son. Well, following that momentous event, which was one of three times in the gospel accounts, when we hear a voice from heaven, when we hear God speak to his son, after that, the Lord Jesus predicted that his hour of crucifixion was also to be an hour of judgment for the world and for the prince of this world, Satan. On the cross, the Lord Jesus would defeat Satan and his whole world system. Well, after stating that Satan would be cast down, it's very interesting to notice that the Lord then said he himself would be, what, lifted up. And there was a double meaning in that use of uh, his term, lifted up. He was not only predicting his lifting up in crucifixion, but he was also speaking of his lifting up in glorification. The Son of God was going to be glorified by being crucified. In other words, he was going to be lifted up by being lifted up. And we know that he intended this double meaning 
because of the way he ended that sentence. He said that the Son of Man, if the, well, here's the words he said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He didn't draw all men unto him on the cross, but he drew all men to him by way of the cross, but ultimately through his resurrection was when all men were drawn to him. And in using the term all men, the Lord Jesus here, remember he's still speaking to Greeks, to Gentiles. He was clearly telling these Greeks who had desired to see him that his grace was not going to be confined just to Israel and just to the Jews. Once those Greeks and all other Gentiles who who would come to a saving knowledge of him throughout the centuries would behold him high and lifted up in his crucifixion and in his subsequent resurrection and glorification, then they would be able to really see him. They wanted to see him. They would really be able to see him after his resurrection. They'd be able to see him with spiritual eyes, with the eyes of faith, which I hope that all of us in this room see him with, the eyes of true, genuine, saving faith. Well, the Lord then turned to the multitudes in the temple, and he told them, that only yet a little while would the light be with them. And then he gave his very last public appeal to come to him. He invited those individuals who would yet hear him talk to walk in his light while they yet could before the darkness would overtake them. He said, while ye have light, believe in the light that ye may be the children of light. I always remember every time I used to drop my children off at school. I don't drive them anymore. They drive themselves. But when they were little, the last, things I would, the last thing I would say to them is walk as children of the light today. And that's what the Lord told us to do. We are to be children of the light. Well, then we came to Tuesday of the Passion Week, a day in which the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remember those are the synoptic, a day which, in which they give more details of the Lord's teaching than any other day in his entire life. And we spent a long time in Tuesday. I'm sure I know that we were in Tuesday for over a year, at least. In the early morning hours of Tuesday, the, the Lord, and remember what is this day called? Does anybody remember? The day of... I think I heard a confrontation. He immediately met with confrontation as soon as he got to Jerusalem from the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. All throughout the Lord's ministry, his earthly ministry, his public ministry, he had been tangling with the religious rulers of the nation as they had continuously attempted to either accuse him of one thing or another or ensnare him by what he would say. So as soon as he arrived in the temple on that Tuesday morning, first thing that happens is a delegation of chief priests and elders and scribes immediately met him and demanded once again to know by what authority he had done, quote-unquote, these things. And now what do you suppose they were talking about when they said these things? Well, they didn't know about the fact that he had cursed the fig tree. He had done that in Bethpage. They didn't know about that. But they did know that he had purposely ridden into the holy city seated on a young donkey 
and they knew he had done that to fulfill prophecy, so they knew he was officially presenting himself to the nation as the Messiah, and he also had purposely allowed the people to hail him as the Messiah. Remember, they wanted him to tell the people to stop, and he didn't. He said if they didn't, even the stones would cry out. So he was, they were saying, what authority have you to do this? And the other thing they were talking about was what authority, whose authority are you basing what you did in the temple on? Who gave you the right to cleanse the temple? So that's what they wanted to know. And his answer was really given to them in four steps. First of all, he answered them as he always did with what? Right. I love that about him. He answered their question with a question of his own. And his question had to do with where John the Baptist received his authority, which they didn't answer. Because they knew if they said that John the Baptist had received his authority from God, from heaven, then Jesus would ask them, well, why didn't you believe John's message? which was that I am the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. So they knew they couldn't answer that way. On the other hand, if they said that John's authority did not come from heaven, they would immediately jeopardize their own popularity with the people because the people deeply loved John, who of course was dead by this time, but they loved him and they acknowledged him as a true prophet of God. So knowing that either answer would be dangerous to their own self-interest. They pleaded ignorance, and they said, well, we don't know, we're not sure. We don't know where John got his authority, to which Jesus then said, in effect, well, then, since you don't know where John received his authority, neither will I tell you where I get my authority. And that was in Matthew 21, 27. He knew that these religious men who were trying to trip him didn't really care where he got his authority anyway. They really just wanted him to trap himself by saying, well, I'm God and I get my authority from myself. And they would say that's blasphemy and, and immediately have him um, killed. But of course, as always, their plan backfired on them, didn't it? Well, it was at this point that the Lord then gave the parable of the two sons. Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32 hope I can get all that on there where the father you know told both of his sons to go and work in his vineyard and the first son said that he would not go no way but what did he do he went he apparently repented of his rebellion and he went while the second son very politely said to his father yeah I'll go sure but what happened with him he never did go. He said he would. Sure, pops, but he never went. What Jesus was teaching in that very simple little story was that a profession of obedience does not make a person a true son of God. Sonship, true sonship, is tested by obedience, not by one's verbal profession. It's tested by what you do not by what you say the religious rulers you see had verbally claimed to be the sons of God but they did not obey the words of God which had just recently come through John the 
uh, John the prophet, John the Baptist, and then, of course, more recently through God's Son, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And neither did they really even obey the law, the law of God from from the books of Moses, the writings of Moses, because deliberately over the years they had misapplied um, or misreinterpreted those laws so that they could appear righteous before other people and yet inwardly still feed their own egos and lusts. And then he proceeded to give them another parable, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, which told of a vine dresser who had gone to a great deal of bother and expense to make a vineyard which would produce for him a great harvest. And then he rented this vineyard out to vine dressers who were to be responsible for cultivating and pruning and tending the vine so that it would produce a bountiful harvest for the owner who, remember, went off to a far country. Well, these hired vine dressers were symbolizing in this story the religious rulers of Israel. And who was the vineyard? Israel itself, right? When the harvest came, servants were sent by the owner. The owner was in a far country, but he sent his servants to collect the fruit of the vine. Now, these servants represented God's prophets throughout the Old Testament. But the vine dressers, the leaders of Israel, refused, rejected the owner's servants. And the, the parable said that they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned yet another. However, rather than sending instant judgment upon these wicked vine dressers, the gracious owner of the vineyard sent even more servants to come and collect the fruit of the harvest and to convince these wicked vine dressers to repent and to um, give them the fruit. But once again, the vine dressers failed to respond well to the second group of servants. And again, they treated them in the same manner which they had treated the first group. They killed them. They stoned them to death. And they did all sorts of awful things to them, which we know they did to the Old Testament prophets because they never liked their message. And then, in a most unique display of grace, the owner of the vineyard provided the wicked vine dressers with one more opportunity to produce fruit. This time he sent them his own dearly beloved son, thinking to himself, they will reverence my son. You see, in this parable, through this parable, the Lord Jesus, and this was so wonderful to think about was really he was really answering the pharisees and the scribes question remember their original question was about where his authority came from to do these things well in this parable and they couldn't arrest him for a parable but in the parable he was telling them that he was who he's the owner's son he's god's son well, so the owner sent his son, but sadly, when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. So they caught him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they slew him. By way of this parable, the Lord Jesus was once more predicting what? His own rejection 
and his upcoming death by the hands of these very wicked uh, leaders of the nation of Israel. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it at this point. He even asked them what should happen to these wicked vine dressers, and they said, oh, they should be killed. <laughs> they didn't get it. They do in another minute. Because he went on to predict that the kingdom of God would then be taken from these rulers and given to a people who would bring forth the fruits of righteousness. And we know there that he was speaking of Gentiles, that he was speaking really about his church. Well, after hearing that part of it, it finally dawned on these men, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and whoever else was standing around, that he was speaking about them. And at this time, they really sought to lay hands on him, but they didn't because they feared a mob rebellion by the people. He was in the temple surrounded by the people who really considered him to be a prophet. So they didn't dare touch him at that point. Well, the Lord wasn't finished with them. He still had another parable to speak, and this was the parable of the wedding banquet for the king's son, which was very similar to a parable you looked at last week, the parable of the great banquet, except that a king hosted, in this case, a particular banquet for his son's wedding. The people who were initially invited to um, this wedding feast again, as in that other parable, had all kinds of feeble excuses why they couldn't come. And they even mistreated and killed some of the king's messengers who were inviting them to this wonderful banquet. Well, naturally, this angered the king, who then sent forth his armies to destroy those murderers and burn up their city. And that is literally what happened in 70 A.D., when God sent in his army, you know, his, he used Rome to literally kill the murderers, the, people, the ones who had killed his son, and burn up their city, and Jerusalem was burned to the ground. And then the king sent forth his servants out onto the highways and the byways, just as we saw in the parable of the great banquet. And those people, which we know he was speaking of here, Gentiles, gladly accepted the, to... Uh, the invitation to come to the wedding banquet for the king's son. Well, following that third parable, Matthew 22:15 tells us that then the Pharisees and the and the Sadducees took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And what followed was three attempts by the various sects S E C T S, it's hard to say and have you know what I'm talking about, sects <laughs> of religious leadership to trick Jesus by um, discrediting himself with his own answers. So they, they had three uh, trick questions that they were going to present to him. First of all, the Pharisees approached him, and they actually sent some of their young disciples with a group of Herodians and gave him a politically loaded question regarding the payment of tribute to Caesar. They figured that no matter which way he would answer their question, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not, that he would either get himself in trouble with the Roman authorities, and see, they had the Herodians there who were sympathetics to the Romans. If he said, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, those Herodians would run right to the Roman soldiers and Jesus would be arrested. And yet, on the other hand, if he answered... Um, 
to the that you would, should pay your taxes and that taxes that the coins had a picture of Caesar then they thought all the Jews would um, turn against him for using money that had idols on it but he perceived their craftiness and answered them with again a question of his own he said why tempt ye me you hypocrites isn't that a good question <laughs> He knew what they were up to. And then, of course, he gave them a most profound answer which no one could argue with at all. In fact, when the men heard these words, it tells us that they marveled and they left because they just didn't know how to respond. He said, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. No one could argue with an answer like that. He declared in this answer the divinely ordained responsibility of citizens to pay their taxes to whatever government rules over them. The payment of tax, he said, was not only legal, but it was their moral obligation, which in no way interfered with their duty to God. Well, having watched the Pharisees fail to ensnare Jesus, the Sadducees stepped forth. They thought they'd have a shot at it. And, of course, they thought they would succeed where their co-conspirators had failed. So they approached Jesus with a doctrinally loaded question. The first one was politically loaded. This is doctrinally loaded. And it had to do with a very foolish illustration about a woman who had seven brothers as her sequential husbands, each one dying before she also finally died. And we said, I sure would wonder about her cooking if I was that seventh husband. <laughs> They wanted to know whose wife she would be in the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Terrible joke. Um, nor did they believe in a spirit world. They didn't believe in angels or demons. I really don't know what they believed in, in other, other than getting what you want in the here and now. They were really... Um, a secular humanists, as far as I can see. Well, they based their disbelief in resurrection upon the assumption that Moses never taught anything, as far as they could determine, about resurrection in the, in the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote the first five books, and those were the only five books of the Bible, or the Old Testament, which they believed in, they didn't, that they believed were divinely inspired. And they said that um, Moses never taught anything about the resurrection, so they didn't believe in resurrection. So in their foolish illustration, they were purposely wanting the whole concept of resurrection to look ludicrous. They were making jest of life and death issues, is what they were doing, and they really believed that they had the Lord trapped because no such complicated marriage relationship could be resolved, even in heaven. Whose husband would she be if she had seven brothers? Well, it would be pretty ludicrous. So they figured that Jesus would either have to simply admit the absurdity and chaos which a, an actual resurrection would present, a resurrection of the dead, or else that he would have to remain silent. And if he did remain silent, he would be admitting defeat. But instead of looking the fool or remaining silent, the Lord showed them by way of the very writings of Moses himself that there is a resurrection of the dead. He said that God said, I am 
the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was. He is the God of the living, not the dead. You see, by saying I am the God of Abraham, he was saying that Abraham was still alive, right? Or else he would have said I was the God of Abraham. And Jesus went on, furthermore, to tell them that there was no need for them to concern themselves about ludicrous marriage situations in heaven because marriage is merely an earthly temporal institution. There is no giving of marriage or in marriage in heaven. Jesus said to them, ye do err, err, I guess is the proper way, you do, you do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And with his answer, they were ashamed and defeated and the multitudes were astonished at his doctrine. Well, when both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been silenced, Jesus was then approached by a scribe. And this man really must have thought he was something. He thought he could get the Lord where nobody else had. So he tempted him, and it actually tells us he tempted him, so his motive was not right here, with what he thought was a loaded theological question. He asked the Lord what the greatest commandment in the law was. And what he was hoping that Jesus would do in his response was to give some kind of a newly devised great commandment of his own, which would somehow or another contradict Moses. If Jesus contradicted Moses, then the leaders, of course, would accuse him of heresy, because to contradict Moses was in their sight to contradict God himself. And it would be. It would have been a sin to contradict Moses, because we know Moses wrote under divine inspiration. Well, the lawyer, on behalf of all the scribes, perhaps thought that Jesus would say something like, the greatest commandment is to believe in me. However, Jesus surprised everyone once again by quoting a commandment directly from, who do you think? Directly from Moses himself. This is found in Deuteronomy 6, 5. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This, Jesus said, is the first and the great commandment. And then, even though the scribe had not asked for what the second greatest commandment was, the Lord himself went the second mile and told him what the second greatest commandment was. He said, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets and of course with that wonderful answer no one could find fault because his answer was perfect well then the lord had a question of his own for the religious rulers and his question so silenced them that the scripture says from that day forth no man tried to ensnare him anymore with questions they admitted defeat they knew when they'd been when they'd met their match and i'm not going to get into the question itself and all the significance of it because it is very deep other than to tell you that jesus was showing them once again from the old testament that the messiah the son of david was actually the lord god himself because david in psalm 110 verse 1 addressed the Messiah addressed who everyone knew was the Messiah as Adonai, 
which is a name for God. So he was showing them that the Messiah is God, and they couldn't answer him because it came from their own scripture, and they knew it. Well, following this time of questions and answers, in which the Lord totally silenced and defeated every group of the religious leadership of Israel, he then gave his denunciation discourse. And that is found in Matthew chapter 23. It's not a very happy chapter, but that's where he pronounced his denunciation upon them. He denounced them for shutting up the kingdom, refusing not only to enter themselves, but they stood in the way of others entering into the kingdom. He accused them of stealing from widows, uh, for sending men to hell and making their proselytes twice fold the children of hell than themselves. He accused them of swearing for gain, making oaths of promise with forked tongues, so to speak, of straining at gnats while swallowing camels, in other words, majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. He accused them of scrubbing their externals while having polluted interiors. He said they were like whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. And he also accused them of slaying the righteous, just like their forefathers had slayed a lot of the Old Testament prophets, except they were even worse because they were planning how they would kill the very Son of God. Well, it was at this time, probably feeling very tired and mentally exhausted, if the Lord ever got mentally exhausted, I imagine in his humanity he did, he then went and sat down somewhere in the area of the court of the women, which was also the temple treasury. And it was here that a very poor widow woman unknowingly blessed his aching heart and probably greatly uplifted his spirits when she placed all that she possessed into a receptacle for the Lord's work. And all she possessed in the world was two mites, equivalent to one-eighth of an American penny. Well, the Lord's subsequent comments about her to his disciples taught us and taught them that God's scales measure our gifts not by the amount that we give, but by the amount which is left over after we have given. Men see only what is given, don't they? Men see only what you put in the offering plate. But God sees what you have left in your purse. His scales measure, in other words, by the proportion of the gift, not by the portion. And he also, of course, measures the condition of our heart as we give. If we give begrudgingly, we might as well not give. He loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? Well, then for the next ten weeks in our Life of Christ study... And at this point, we were in our sixth year. We discussed the most important prophetic address to ever have come from the lips of the greatest prophet of all time. And that prophetic sermon is known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's found most completely in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Now, this sermon was given on a small hill to the east of Jerusalem known as the Mount of what olives that's where it gets its name olivet discourse um and it was given we're still on this same tuesday of the passion week 
It followed the Lord's confrontations with the religious rulers. It followed his denunciation discourse to them. And it also followed his comments on the widow and her two mites. And then it followed his departure from the city of Jerusalem to return back to Bethany where he would spend the night. Apparently, on the way back to Bethany, the Lord and his men stopped for a rest on this Mount of Olives. And the disciples at that time asked him two very important questions. And these questions are what launched Jesus into giving the longest answer to any question in all of the New Testament. Probably in all of the Bible. Their first question was, when shall these things be? And they were referring back to the announcement the Lord had made to them as they were leaving Jerusalem that very same day, Tuesday. When he had predicted both the future desolation of the temple, he said, your house shall be left unto you desolate. As well as when he predicted that it would be utterly destroyed. It's desolation and it's destruction when he said that not one stone would be left upon another. So they're asking, when shall these things be? When will our temple be left desolate? And when will it be totally destroyed? And he gave him that answer in the first part of the Olivet Discourse. And then their second question was, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And the Lord's long answer told us many, many truths about both the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, as well as about the latter days prior to the Lord's second coming. And, of course, much of what we studied as we went through the Olivet Discourse is material which is found in the book of Daniel, as well as in the book of Revelation. So if you ever really want just a... Uh, jet tour through Revelation, you can study the Olivet Discourse. We do have that also in an um, album, I think, of ten, yeah, ten messages. We discuss such things as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Got to get caught up here. There they are. Uh, we discuss the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs, which were wars and rumors of wars, the um, increase of earthquakes, I go fast here, all right, and diseases and famines, and we discuss false Christs as well as the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation. We discussed, of course, the Great Tribulation and the signs of the second coming, such as the darkening of the sky and the special sign of the Son of Man. I killed it. And the gathering of the elect of Israel. And then he went on after he finished up the Olivet Discourse by talking about the parable of the fig tree, the parable of the ten virgins, you know, five foolish and five wise, and then the parable of the talents, the sheep and the goats. And, of course, I cannot repeat all of that teaching. But, um, again, if you weren't here, get the cassette because it's well worth your time to study that, especially if you're interested in the future for us. All right, so Tuesday of the Lord's Passion Week then ended, and I'm going to end with this with dinner in Bethany. Remember, he was on his way to spend the night with Martha and Mary and Lazarus over in Bethany. Well, he had dinner in the home that night of Simon, a former leper, who he himself had healed. And this meal was attended not only by the Lord and his 12 men, 
but also by the Lord's good friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And it tells us that Martha and Mary were serving. Isn't that nice to know? After Martha had been, or Mary had been chastened by her sister for not helping her out the last time, and Martha had been chastened for being so busy. Well, now they were working together, so they were both helping serve. Anyway, it was at this dinner on Tuesday night of the Passion Week that sweet Mary, and I love that picture because that's sort of how I visualize her. She may not look like that at all, but that's how I visualize her. She took a very expensive alabaster box of spikenard perfume, which was the equivalent in cost of a Roman soldier's wages for an entire year. So it was very expensive perfume. And in an act of unmeasured love, she broke that box and spilled out the fragrant perfume lavishly upon the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. You know, she had spent much time, we've seen in the past, at the Lord's feet. That's why her sister was upset with her when she wasn't serving. She was sitting at the Lord's feet listening to him. And she, more than anyone else, anyone, any one of his disciples even, seemed to realize what he was saying when he so often talked about his own death. She must have seen, at this point, the shadow of the cross and knew that it was now time to anoint him for his death and his sacrificial work. Perhaps one of the disciples had even told her as they came to dinner that night that the Lord, on his journey from the Mount of Olives, to Bethany that very day had said in two more days on the day of the feast that he would be crucified. Maybe one of the disciples whispered that to her. Whatever the case might have been, John 12 verse 7 tells us that she had kept this spikenard ointment against the day of his burial, which she now realized was at hand. In fact, verses 3 and 5 of Matthew chapter 26 tell us that it was at this very same time, while they're having dinner at Simon the former leper's house, that Caiaphas and the chief priests and the elders were actually consulting together how they might take Jesus by subtlety, in other words, by stealth, by secrecy so that there would not be an uproar by the people. Well, it was on this night also that Judas Iscariot revealed, at least to us, the disciples didn't catch it, but we did as we read it, that he revealed his greed when he criticized Mary's waste in pouring the perfume out upon Jesus rather than giving it to him to Judas so that he could go out and sell it and give the money to the poor. Now, you know he was not going to do that, was he? He would pocket that money for himself. So Judas's question, why this waste, we talked about, is precisely the way that the world, under the dominion of the devil, sees anything which is done for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I told you at that time that those were some of the very last words my father said to me sad to say was that I said it's such a waste you are wasting your life teaching the Bible and brainwashing your children that's the way the world sees anything which is done for the Lord however the truth of the 
matter is that just absolutely the opposite is true. Waste is whatever you do that is not done for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul said that our labor for Christ is never in vain. You will be rewarded for it one day, but that shouldn't be our motivation. Our motivation should be because we love him for all that he did for us. Love for the Lord is never, ever wasted. In fact, you know, love cannot give him too much. No sacrifice is great enough for he who was broken and spilled out for us. And I hope you feel that way about it. The Lord's response, and I love this, the Lord's response to Judas's accusation was, Leave her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Once again, we saw that Mary had chosen that good part. And Jesus here was commending his little sheep. And he was defending her or protecting her from the big bad wolf, wasn't he? And I can't help but see this as uh, a foreshadowment, in a way, of the Lord's um, work on high as our high priest, as our advocate. He is ever defending his own before the accuser, Satan, isn't he? And Satan, whenever Satan comes to him, you know, before the Lord and, and makes his accusations and says, well, you know, your servant Catherine, she has done this and she has done that and she is just so bad. He says, leave her alone. I love that. Leave her alone. You can accuse her of nothing because she has been covered by my shed blood, which I shed on Calvary. And she bears my righteousness. You can't accuse her of anything. You know, Mary of Bethany seems to be the only one, as I mentioned, who understood and believed the Lord's own predictions of his resurrection. Over and over again, he told his men that he would die and that he'd be resurrected, but they never believed it or they never got it. They never understood it. But she had spent a lot of time listening at his feet. And it's interesting to me that we will not find, when we get there, we will not find Mary at either the cross or the tomb. You may not know that because there were a lot of Marys at both places. Mary, the Lord's mother, is at the cross. And Mary Magdalene is at the tomb. And Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, is at both the cross and the tomb. But Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, is not at either one. Now, why do you think that is? I think it's because Mary was already standing on resurrection ground. <clears throat> and then in further defense of Mary, the Lord went on to say that wherever the gospel would be preached in the whole world, that which Mary had done for him would be spoken of as a memorial for her. And when we studied that, I told you, you know, this morning we have fulfilled prophecy because this morning we have talked about what she did and it is a memorial to her. And we are fulfilling right now the Lord's own prediction. I believe that he did this for her because she was the first person to truly understand that he was who he had claimed to be. 
in the scene at her brother's tomb when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And when she saw her brother walk out, she knew that he was indeed 